Barbie and Oppenheimer are two of the most anticipated films of the year, both dropping on July 21st in a box office battle. Let's discuss this competition. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. In today's episode, we're doing a very special audio-only episode recording at Spotify headquarters. This is very exciting. We're in their studio. They have amazing microphones, and we're so thankful for them welcoming us into their studio. And we're going to discuss the biggest showdown of 2022, Barbie and Oppenheimer. It's actually 2023, Anthony. It's 2023. Oh, my God. Get the year right. (laughs) And, yeah, we're actually at Spotify headquarters, like Anthony said, in Los Angeles. We're recording on some beautiful Neumann microphones, the BCM. 703 so we had to take advantage of this sorry no video on this episode so but available on every audio platform you can find us now barbie versus oppenheimer both dropping this year so much around this buzz for this competition of these behemoths going at it we have universal's film versus warner brothers film this is the first film obviously that christopher nolan has not released with warner brothers he left the studio after they, after everything that happened with Tenet with and lockdown, so Warner Brothers is distributing Barbie. Warner Brothers oh. is distributing Barbie with wow. Mattel, so that's why Warner Brothers put Barbie on July twenty first, just to give a middle finger to Chris Nolan, even though it's Chris Nolan. The pettiness, I, I think. I think it's. I think a, you're right. A petty competition. So I, that's definitely why. But you, again, this is Universal versus Warner Brothers. It's Christopher Nolan versus Warner Brothers, basically. And I think they're two of the most hotly anticipated films of the year. It's interesting because they both come out on July 21st this summer. And then the week before, Mission Impossible 7 comes out, De- Dead Reckoning Part 1. So July is going to be a bonkers month at the box office. I think we're going to be pulling several billion globally that month in you know, we're going to talk about these films in terms of their what they're going to be about, their development, the production, the crew, and kind of gauge which will have the upper hand on that day of release. This is a speculation episode. It's all spec. Now, what I do think is interesting is sometimes when films compete at, at the box office, they can be kind of similar in terms of genre or what kind of audience would be interested in seeing the films. But what's really specific about this is it seems obviously the films couldn't be more different from one another. And you can tell it from the marketing, from the trailer, from the approaches to the storytelling, and from the story itself. One is a film based on a historical world event that changed the course of history. And one's based on one of the most successful toy lines in American history. So two big stories, but completely different genres and very talented filmmakers behind them. We have obviously Christopher Nolan has proven himself over the last two decades as one being one of the most exciting, original, and impressive filmmakers of the century so far. And then Greta Gerwig, a uh, rising force in film. She's crafted two fantastic movies, Lady Bird and Little Woman, while also writing a few others as well. And she's actually wrote this script for Barbie with her partner, Noah Baumbach, who is also an extremely talented filmmaker and writer. He's been uh, nominated for a couple of writing Oscars. Marriage Story is so good. He yeah. wrote and directed that. Marriage Story. But he's actually, he actually directed two films written by Greta Gerwig, Mistress America, uh, and then uh, Francis Ha. Oh, and then all, just those two. And, and then the first film they worked on together was Greenberg with Ben Stiller and Greta Gerwig. So that was the first film they collaborated on. And since then, they they started a partnership and they have they have a family now. So it's a, it's a really beautiful like power couple. It's like an indie film power couple. You know, I love it. I love it. <laughs> And then Christopher Nolan, his producing partner, Emma Thomas, 
his 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 life partner as well. So you get two couples warring at it, <laughs> two, two warring couples in this, which is also very interesting. But this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What I like is Greta and Nolan and Bombach, three extremely talented writers, who always do something different with their films. That's what I'm really excited about, especially with Barbie, where I don't think anybody really has any idea what's going to happen with Barbie and what the story will be. We have we have a hint from the trailer, but I think it's going to be uh, really surprising in a great way, and it looks like they might even be making it a musical in some regards as well. It definitely looks like a, a bit like a musical, but the thing with Barbie is I'm so intrigued because what is the tone of this film going to be? And we obviously got the teaser with Barbie and Greta Gerwig like poking fun and, and homaging 2001 A Space Odyssey with her and the the giant figure like the monolith of Barbie and the high heels and everything and you know obviously it's probably going to be a PG movie this is a Mattel their their first big live action production the first time Barbie's ever been a live action character in a film before and what's the tone going to be obviously again it's PG they got to sell Barbie dolls that's a main point of Mattel making this movie is they got they got a commercial they're moving some toys you know they're, they're having the kids by the aisles but also it it seems like it's going to have an adult undertone not really explicit in a lot of sense but kind of like a lot of these great animated movies and cartoons where adults can enjoy it just as much as kids. So I don't think it's even fair to just call Barbie like a kid's movie. It just seems like it's maybe a family movie is a better way to describe it. But also, I wouldn't be surprised if if there's maybe a more dark, sinister tone to it that's not scary but like still cool to get that PG rating because what would entice... You know, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach to take on this role and Mattel to make this live action version. And I remember reading a quote from Margot Robbie a couple of weeks ago where she was talking about the film and she's like, oh, I'd love to make this Barbie movie, but there's no way that they would let us do this kind of movie. And then they all of a sudden they said, oh, we can do this kind of movie. So what does that mean? Her saying like they wouldn't let us do this. There's no way there's no way they would let us do it, but they get to do it. Is there something dark about it? I think that they might be able to have conversations about uh, corporate America and unregulated capitalism. I think they might be they might touch on. I think they might touch on, like you said, some adult themes that can actually resonate outside of the story and not just be a movie for kids or children, but actually, you know, have something to say, especially in an industry like this, which is completely corporatized. And then, you know. America compared to the rest of the world is just like a giant corporation in a lot of ways. So I think that they can really have a discussion about that. Because- Don't you love when corporations poke fun at corporations? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, because I, I also think that uh, for Greta and Bombach to actually do something like this, they would need to have complete creative freedom, you know, because they're very, they're, they're creative artists. They, they write their, their movies. They have final cut and final say on what is done in their films, so I think that the only way for them to sign on is for Mattel to be like, you know what, do your thing, Greta Gerwig, um, we'll just be happy to have you on board, and it's your vision, do what you think is best for your film, because there actually was a previous iteration of Barbie that was in pre-production for quite a while, um, and then they changed gears and brought on Greta Gerwig to take over, and so I think that maybe that first iteration of the live-action film was maybe not going in the direction that they wanted it to, 
And so I'm sure they're happy with what's going on right now. The development actually went through several years of back and forths of turning it on and turning off, which I'll get to in a second. But let's talk about, before the development, I want to run through synopsis ease of both films. First of all, Oppenheimer follows physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, who works with a team of scientists during the Manhattan Project, leading to the development of the atomic bomb. We've done an episode on everything we know about Oppenheimer, previewing this film about the Manhattan Project, about the atomic bombs made by the U.S. government used in World War II to basically end the war. And now Barbie, this film is set in Barbie land, a beautiful, colorful society with Kens and Barbies. Ryan Gosling's Ken, said to be a complete doofus, is obsessed with Barbie, but loves the real world for all the reasons Barbie hates it. Beauty standards, sexism, etc. Gerwig's film eventually becomes a big fish-out-of-water comedy as Ken and Barbie leave Barbie land for the real world, and the Mattel CEO, played by Will Ferrell, goes after the duo to bring them back to Barbie land, and a shorter one is after being expelled from Barbie land for being a less-than-perfect-looking doll, Barbie sets off for the human world to find true happiness. Oppenheimer background on the development. Nolan was announced to write and direct a biographical film about J. Robert Oppenheimer set during World War II with Universal Pictures being chosen as the distributor back in September 2021. Much of the main cast signed on between 2021 of September and April 2022. Pre-production was underway by January 22 and filming began in late February 2022, wrapped in May. It was filmed in a combination of IMAX 65mm and 65mm large format film, including for the first time sections in IMAX black and white analog photography. Cannot wait to see this first time captured technology on the big screen. Like his previous works, obviously, Nolan extensively used practical effects and minimal computer-generated imagery. Now back on on the development of Bobby, the film was announced in September 2009, originally backed by Universal Pictures, ironically, with Lawrence Mark producing, but development began, b- development ended, but then began again in April 2014 when Sony Pictures acquired the rights. Following multiple writer and director changes and the casting of two different actresses to play the title role, Sony lost the rights, and these were subsequently transferred to Warner Brothers. So it went from Universal to Sony, now Warner Brothers. They got it in 2018 of October with Robbie and Talks to Star. Also, Anne Hathaway was potential lead for this role as well as Barbie. But Robbie was cast in 2019 and also serves as producer through her company, Lucky Chap Entertainment, with the production credit alongside Heyday Films from David Heyman, who obviously we all know did all the Wizarding World films and Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts, as well as Mattel Films. This is their first live-action film, I believe. Greta Gerwig was confirmed as director and co-writer with her husband, Noah Baumbach, in 2021. Gosling and the rest of the cast were announced in early 2022. Filming took place at Warner Brothers Studio and leaves in in England from March to July 2022. And the crews on this are really impressive. Most notably, uh, composers Ludwig Gornson, who has become uh, Christopher Nolan's new darling as a composer. And then, new darling? Yeah, his, <laughs> his new muse. And then Alexander Desplat, who has done all of Greta Gerwig's films uh, so far. And he is clearly, he's without a doubt one of the greatest composers of all time already, only 25 years into his career. He's just a really magnificent composer with such an incredible body of work. But then the DPs. Well, let's stay, let's stay oh, on yeah. one at a time. Let's yeah. take our time. So the music, this is a great kind of showdown, we can say, oh, yeah. between Ludwig Gorenson 
and Alexander Desplat. I cannot wait to hear both scores, obviously, because I love Tenet, that movie, and the score that Ludwig came up with was phenomenal, one of the best pieces of music, and also he won an Oscar so early in his career um, for, what, what did he win, for, for Black, Black Panther. Panther, so he won that back in, what was that, 2018, and he had to have been, what, early 30s, maybe something like that, so he, he is was just- 16. <laughs> <laughs> Up-and-coming genius composer going against a proven genius composer, Alexander Desplat. Now, I am assuming that the Barbie score by Desplat is going to be very playful. And I'm guessing something along the lines of the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is one of my favorite scores he's ever done. But I can't wait to see what both these composers come up with, especially Ludwig, because... I don't know if he's ever done a sort of a period piece before and what the what kind of music Christopher Nolan's going to want for this film because obviously the sound design is going to be incredible for these huge set pieces. If a bomb actually gets exploded on in the film, we don't know yet. But I'm so curious what he comes up with. But then the playfulness, the Barbie sounds, maybe Alexander Desplat would play with and I think he'll have so much fun with it. And both composers, they actually are very different in terms of their style. Desplat will not use any electronics. He actually still just uses primarily um, instrumental work, and that's basically it. He also conducts his own orchestra, and he writes every single note, every single page of his compositions. Uh, he's very meticulous. It's actually it's very rare for a composer to also conduct the orchestra in this day and age, uh, but he never uses electronics. I can't think of anything that he has. Um, and then you look at Ludwig Göransson. He does both. He is actually like a prolific instrument player. He can play all sorts of instruments, and, and many of his scores, including... Tenet and the uh, Mandalorian scores, he played many of the instruments you hear on screen, and he has a big collection of instruments, so it's really inter- interesting to see someone have you know, a complete grasp of musical uh, production to not only just be an e- expert composer, recorder, mixer, but also an actual player of instruments, and he's able to take a simple instrument like a guitar and play a few notes on it, but then he turns it into like the main theme for Tenet. You know what I mean? He's He has an amazing ability with computer software to transform uh, simple things into the most amazing sounds you've never heard before. Uh, I, I saw this interview on Tenet, and he like just said, like you know, I just use guitar mostly, and he would just modify it and throw effects on it and create a lot of the soundscapes you hear in that movie. And so I'm guessing with Oppenheimer, it's going to be kind of similar where he's going to embrace both physical, world, real-world instruments, and then creating his own sounds. And I'm guessing from the IMAX trailer, we just saw it a few days ago when we saw Evil Dead in IMAX, I think that we heard a lot of uh, some of the themes of Ludwig's score. And it seems like if, if Nolan, he of, often likes c- to connect themes and actual sounds from the movie into the score and, and incorporate them that way, whether it be a ticking clock or things like that or the Edith P.F. song in Inception. So I'm guessing that they did a lot of recordings of explosions of all sorts, and I guarantee you Ludwig's playing around with those sounds to help craft the music and the actual sounds we hear on screen. Yeah, like those atmosphere, <laughs> yeah, like things like that. I can't wait to see and listen to it. That actually reminds me of, uh, I was watching an interview with Denis and Hans when they were promoting Dune, and they were talking about the bagpipes and how Denis like, I need bagpipes. That's what I want for the sound of House Atreides. And, you know, they get off the ship and the bagpipes guys are playing. And Hans told him, like, at 
at the t- at the talk show, like, oh yeah, those aren't bagpipes. He's like, what do you mean those aren't bagpipes? He's like, that's actually a guitarist, and we just played around with it. And then he's like, oh my god. So he tricked the knee into thinking that the guitar sounds that he modded were bagpipes. Yeah. So that's really interesting that Ludwig does the same thing as kind of a genius at creating sounds with different instruments. And you don't need bagpipes to create bagpipes these days, which is really yeah. fascinating. There are different kinds of composers, and I think that Ludwig is someone who is very similar to a Hans Zimmer. And that's why yeah. Nolan likes him so much. Exactly. And then there are composers who are still are very much like uh, Alexander de Splat kind of composers. So like a Giacchino, yeah, John Williams. Exactly. You know, they're, they're not gonna use too much electronics or modify their music in too too in too many ways. And there in De Splat is someone he likes to have the whole orchestra there as well, as opposed to recording in sections and beats here and there, and getting just the brass or just like one player to throw in there, private sessions, uh, Zoom sessions, like composers like Ludwig, they're ma- they'll happy to record someone across the world and they don't have to be in the room at the same time, but they Splat likes to have the whole orchestra together in one big room and record the sound that way. Yeah, so I can't wait to see the battle of the music. But before <laughs> that, I want to talk about the battle of the box office potentials. And I actually made a list of the rankings of Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig's box offices in their box office weekend. So Christopher Nolan's box office career, his office ranks are Dark Knight Rises at number one with $1.1 billion, Dark Knight at number two with $1 billion, Inception, 826 million, Interstellar 677 million, Dunkirk 525 million, Batman Begins 371 million, Tenet made 365 million. Again, that's when theaters were mostly closed and had a terrible opening weekend, but eventually somehow made 365 million. Insomnia 113 million, The Prestige 110 million, Memento 40 million, and then following his independent film that he made on $10,000, made $240,000. What a track record. To have the prestige make over 100 is wild. And really, Tenet's the only one that technically lost money. It's probably made up, it's it's made profits. In rentals, I think. Yeah. But again, that was such a rare circumstance where the entire planet shut down and theaters shut down. We drove to San Diego to see that movie. We're in the number one market for theaters in America, and we had to drive two and a half hours to see the film. So that's, that's a testament to how well the film actually did do. And it did very well globally at that time, but it was in theaters for a long time, and it was just making you know five million a weekend here, six million there, and just kept it just had long legs. Uh, and I mean, I think that people often say it's a failure, and the move the movie was a failure, but to make almost four hundred million during lockdowns, I found that to be so impressive, and I was like, only a Nolan movie could do that. Exactly, honestly. because a big discussion right now, and a lot of conversations are. Who's going to be the box office weekend king when Barbie and Oppenheimer both drop? Or queen. Or queen. So king or queen. Now, Greta Gerwig's box office rank. She's only made two movies. Little Woman grossed $218 million globally in 2019. And then Lady Bird pulled $78 million globally in 2017. Now, let's talk about the opening weekends. For Christopher Nolan, his number one opening weekend was The Dark Knight Rises with $160 million. The Dark Knight with $158 million. Inception, $62 million. Dunkirk, $50 million. Batman Begins, $48 million. Interstellar, $47 million. Insomnia, $20 million. Tenet, $20 million. Again, with most theaters closed. The Prestige, $14 million. Memento, $235,000. And following, $48,000. Can I stop you right here? Yeah. So The Dark Knight, $158 million. I, it's often cited as it was a, a box office record breaker at the time. Yeah. And now it's just been nothing. It, it's been destroyed. You know, I think what Avengers made $206 million opening weekend. If a big corporate movie doesn't make yeah. $150 million, yeah. then it's weird. But you got to keep in mind, I think The Dark Knight could have pulled in $200 million, But keep in mind, what happened opening night? 
of Dark Knight. Yeah, yeah. Of, I mean, Dark Knight Rises. I mean, I think the Dark Knight Rises could have made two hundred million. It made one hundred sixty million, but I think it could have made two hundred million. But during the midnight screening and the event in, in Aurora, I think it prevented lots of people from going to the movies that weekend. So I think that in the following weekend, probably. I think if that film had a normal release in uh, an event like that didn't happen, I think that. Dark Knight Rises could have pulled at least two hundred million easy. But also, this was before the previews on Wednesdays yeah. and Thursdays, yeah. where Thursday, like a movie comes out Friday officially, but you know you'll see thirty-seven screenings at your local movie theater on <laughs> Thursday, then seventeen screenings on Wednesday. So that's really technically now we have five-day opening weekends. Yeah. That's why the box offices keep getting bigger and bigger because they're you know getting these loopholes in to have massive box offices. But in two thousand and eight. To have $160 million, that was a record-breaking opening weekend. That was unheard of with The Dark Knight. Again, it was just midnight openings, too, on that Thursday night. Now, Greta Gerwig's box office opening weekends, The Little Woman, she pulled, that film pulled $16 million, And then Lady Bird, 364000 That was just like a word-of-mouth juggernaut eventually. So the box office for the opening weekend of both these films, when they come out on July 21st, for me, it's kind of up in the air because clearly Greta's also proven to be a box office force. I mean, Lady Bird pulling $78 million on what that was a $3 million budget, something like that, $4 million. And then Little Woman pulling $218 million at the global box office. Huge numbers for small productions, but her opening weekends aren't super strong. However, with the IP of being a Barbie film and the hype for this movie is huge. And the stars. I, yeah, and the stars as well. I can expect this to, I, I, I guarantee both pull $100 million opening weekend, but it's going to be. Who's going to edge out the other one? That's the real curiosity here. So I don't think, for for Nolan, his non-IP movies, they never have $100 million weekends. He's never had that outside of Batman. And so I would, my guess for both films, I think both films will track around 60 to 70 million, 70 million opening weekend. Because also keep in mind, July is packed. Mission Impossible 7 coming out the week before. So it's not like everybody's going to be able to see that in its opening weekend. So I think a lot of people will still be seeing Mission Impossible the same weekend. That being said, I don't expect either film to make $100 million, even if even without Mission Impossible. Um, I would say, I, at first I thought Oppenheimer was going to be tracking higher. I think Oppenheimer could make more in the long run. But I, was, I don't think any was, anyone was anticipating the memification of Barbie and the social media superstorm it ended up becoming. Uh, from day one, you know, and so I think that social media has become extremely excited about Barbie in a way that it reminds me of the Minions fad for Minions: uh, The Rise of Gru last year. The boys were suits and bringing bananas. Exactly. So I think it's kind of like this thing where you know you can't predict social trends. It's impossible to predict that a movie will catch on. Nobody thought that like just. Oppenheimer and Barbie being released the same day would create this media meme superstorm of the boys wearing suits going to see Barbie. Two tickets to Barbie, please. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> or like the Travis Bickle, like yeah. all the boys watching Barbie in theaters. Exactly. So I think the memification of Barbie has created a real firestorm of uh, economic success predictions for the for the film. I think the film will do very well. I'm guessing. Um, not, I don't think either film will hit a billion. I do think that Oppenheimer will track to about 700 to 800 million, kind of, because Dunkirk made almost 600 million. But I think this movie is a lot more um, appealing to audiences, especially with Killian Murphy in the lead role, as well as a bunch of other superstars. Whereas Dunkirk had no 
famous actors outside of Kenneth Branagh, Tom Hardy, but he had his face covered the whole time. Harry Styles. Harry, yeah, Harry Styles. <laughs> but I mean, he not as an actor. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It's not like he's on the poster. Yeah, exactly. So you have a lot of extremely talented and very loved actors in Oppenheimer, which I think will give it the edge over a couple of the more recent Nolan movies. I, I expect this to be Nolan's most successful movie since Inception. In the, outside of his IP films. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so I'm guessing 800 million for Oppenheimer. I'm guessing five to 600 million for Barbie. Although right now, if I was to bet on which would have a better opening weekend, I think I might give the the edge to Barbie because of how much social media has uh, fallen in love with the project and turned it into a fun thing. And so I think that Barbie will edge out Oppenheimer opening weekend, but Oppenheimer will gross more uh, internationally. I think so, too. And I also think that Rotten Tomatoes could greatly affect what movie people see when yeah. they go to see. If, like, Barbie gets, like, in the 60s or 70s, I think people are more likely to happen. see Oppenheimer. I know, I'm just saying. Yeah. But then if it happens to Oppenheimer, people are more likely to see Oppenheimer. But to go back to the memification of Barbie, Oppenheimer is a part of that now yeah. because of the competition. Yes, Barbie's been great with the social marketing, but now they're going hand-in-hand hand together, memed together. It's like... What do you see in first, Barbie or Oppenheimer? Are you doing a double feature? So I think that they're walking hand in hand with the viral marketing. But I will say the the market the memes go in favor of Barbie. But they were made for Barbie. Yeah, that, yeah. I'm not. That, but what I'm trying to say is that Bar Oppenheimer didn't try to virally market. Exactly. Yeah. Oppenheimer was piggybacked because Barbie put the same release date. So yeah. they're they're connected together from Mar- Mar- Barbie's Mar- viral marketing. They're connected at the hip. Yeah. I do not think that either film will change its release date because. I think if a movie was going to change a release date, it would be Barbie. But I don't think that they, they want to change it because it's become the meme. There's it's no be- way they're changing it. That's the, the joke. I, all these rumors about Oppenheimer changing its release date and then Barbie might go the week before. I don't see that happening because the appeal, the whole joke, the running joke for the past year has been Barbie Oppenheimer same day release. It's great for both yeah. films. and It's actually bad for Mission Impossible. Exactly. And so I think that it would actually hurt to not release them on the same day. Yeah, they're not going to not be released on July 21st. And imagine, I mean, is this? there's never been a double feature kind of day like this, I, I think, in recent memory or ever where everybody wants to see two films in one day on their release. You know what I mean? Everybody yeah. wants to do this double feature. It's sort of like the film bro, film and girl versus the casual moviegoer in yeah. a lot of ways. So I think that's a lot of fun as well. But what I think gives Barbie the edge over anything is, and it's something I didn't realize until the last month or so when I was really thinking about how Barbie can be so successful. And I was thinking, you know what? There's been a lot of film adaptations of famous toys, primarily, generally toys, generally for boys. You know, growing up, Transformers has been an absolute juggernaut uh, and force at the box office. Um, I think that, I I didn't factor in the fact that how many tens of millions of millennial women or, or even older women grew up with Barbies play with Barbies all of their childhood, and now they're finally getting their childhood toy 
someone they played with and, and did all these imaginary things with as children is finally going on the big screen. I didn't factor that in. And so I think that there are a lot of women, millennial women, and even the generation after, and even, you know, gener- in Gen Zers who they are dying to see this because they grew up with Barbies. We didn't grow up playing with Barbies. Um, and so I think I never factored that in. So I think that there's actually going to be a large number of 18 to 35-year-olds who are going to be seeing Barbie, and they're going to come out in full force, I think. I think so, too. Now, the casts for both these films are absurd. However, I think Oppenheimer might be one of the most talented casts ever assembled for a film. Let's just run through this. Obviously, we have Killian Murphy in the lead role of J. Robert Oppenheimer. We have Florence Pugh, Matt Damon, Alden Einrich, Emily Blunt, Robert Downey Jr., Gary Oldman, Josh Hartnett, David Desmalchin, Gustav Skarsgård, Jack Quaid, Rami Malek, Kenneth Branagh, Dane Dehan, Olivia Thurlby, Alex Wolfe, Tony Goldwyn, Casey Affleck, Michael Ngarano, James D'Arcy, Josh Peck, Scott Grimes, Matthew Modine, David Krumholtz, and who else would? Jason Clark, Benny Safdie, Matthias Schweigerfer, Emma Dumont, Dylan Arnold, Tom Conti. This cast is absolutely stacked. It's ridiculous. We have so many Oscar winners and Oscar nominees. Not just Oscar winners. You have two Oscar winners for lead actor. So two leading actor Oscar winners, and they're like the 8th and 10th build. Casey Affleck and Rami Malek. You know what I mean? For them to be your supporting cast, that's absurd. You're forgetting about Gary Oldman, sir. Oh, my God. Three Oscar winners for lead actor. My bad. <laughs> Holy crap. And then just so many nominees, which is insane. Rami uh, In Rami Malek. I said Rami. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so Rami, Kenneth Branagh, he's got to have an Oscar, right? He's got one for, 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 for directing. Maybe directing. For screenplay. For, for um, Belfast. Belfast, yeah. Great movie. Great movie. Um, so the talent yeah. on this cast is absurd. So many generational talents as well as young talents and... It's 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 insane. Only Chris Nolan can get this. I think. I, it's one of the most it's one of the more impressive casts I've seen in a long time. You look at something like the French Dispatch was very impressive, but um, I don't know. I mean, I think this might be an even more impressive cast than French Dispatch. It's possible. I think so. And then, but then Barbie. If you want to list off those actors, yeah. So as well. Mar- so Barbie's cast also has Oscar nominees and winners. We have Margot Robbie as Barbie, Ryan Gosling as Ken, Ariana Greenblatt. Helen Marin, who's going to play the narrator. Simu Liu, Will Ferrell, Emma Mackey, America Ferreira, John Cena. He'll be invisible on screen the whole time. <laughs> you won't know where he is. <laughs> Nicola Coughlin, Michael Sarah, Kate McKinnon, Harry Neff, Rhea Perlman, Rita Aria, and then also Kingsley Ben-Adir, Dua Lipa, Nguto Gatua, Issa, Issa Rae, Scott Evans, Connor Swindles, Jamie Dietrio. So many great actors and actresses in this film. Yeah, it's another great ensemble. But I will say this is more up-and-coming actors. They're still establishing their their careers. And a pop star. Yeah, you know? and, yeah, and a pop star as well. And I would say, I mean, I, there's too many proven, long-standing uh, actors in Oppenheimer. I think that gives it the edge for sure in terms of the overall cast. Both really impressive Yeah, cast, absolutely, though. yeah. No, I think it, I think it was smart for Gerwig to go with an ensemble and not just make it just a Barbie movie, but to really make it a strong ensemble. Super curious to see the rest of the cast as well and their roles because there are going to be multiple Kens, multiple Barbies. The trailer was really fun, how it's going to poke fun at that. Now, let's get into cinematography. 
We have Hoyt Van Hoytema, who is Christopher Nolan's darling, as Anthony would say, since Interstellar. His bro. And then His camera bro. Rodrigo Prieto is doing Barbie. Now, Rodrigo has done a bunch of Scorsese films. He's his go-to guy as well as so many others. These are two incredible artists, visionaries behind the camera. Hoyt, obviously really took Christopher Nolan's aesthetic vision to a new level, I think, working with the IMAX cameras and just them developing those lenses and cameras together with IMAX and just their experience together working with them. And then Rodrigo Prieto, like, I didn't even know he was doing this film until I looked it up the other day. Like, what a decision by Greta Gerwig to hire him. I think he's one of the most unappreciated cinematographers working today because I think that someone like Greg Frazier gets a lot of attention, Roger Deakins, obviously, but Rodrigo Prieto is really an incredible figure in the world of cinematography for Scorsese to just be like you're my guy you're my cinematographer for the the last 15 years is just incredible and outside of Scorsese he's made a lot of incredible films as well but Brokeback Mountain yeah, Broke Babel yeah. Argo to do Ben Affleck and you're to Ang Lee movies in a five-year period that's absurd like he just works with the best of the best and there's a reason I think that Brokeback is one of the most beautifully shot films of the century. And then Silence, which he made with Martin Scorsese, is another one as well. A very un, uh, underrated, underappreciated film from both Scorsese and Pareto. And uh, I think it's really smart for Gerberg to hire someone who's so accomplished because it looks like the production design and the lighting of this film has only been teased uh, for Barbie. We've seen just a little bit of the real world stuff. But I really love the production design of Barbie Land and how it looks like it's all plastic and it, you can see the, you, the 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 horizon line. There is it just you can see the studio walls in the background. You know what I mean? It it looks like a set on purpose. And look I, at this picture. Where's yeah. the horizon? <laughs> is it interesting? <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me uh, of I said in a past episode. It reminds me of Elf and the North Pole, where you have Will Ferrell. And he's on a set. It's clearly a set. You can see that the sky is just painted on the wall. And you can actually see like where the floor and that wall connect. And But it's meant to be like that. And I like that. It looks like that for Barbie where you can tell it's a set. But that's the whole point. It's all about imagination. You, they don't have to film this in the real world. I think it's smart to film Barbie Land in a studio and make it look like it's filmed in a studio. Not make it look like it's filmed in a studio. And hide and make it not, not film it in a studio and make it feel like it's real. Put the film in a studio and make it look like a studio. I think it's a great decision by the team. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing that entire uh, sequence about what I would guess is the first act of the film. This episode is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. Our set in-house is decked out with so many of these amazing posters, high-quality prints, the best you can get for your money. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. So if you need to get a movie poster for either yourself or the movie fan in your life, head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. And Oppenheimer looks absolutely stunning and gorgeous. Like we said, this is going to be the first film ever shot with IMAX 65mm film, which was specially developed for this movie. And it's got all the elements of Christopher Nolan's recent films with the great aesthetic and the close-ups, the wide shots, the, the creativity, the colors. I love the colors of this film are just like so much red and orange for the power of the sun. And then the black and white, which we can assume will be flash-forward sequences. He said he's going to use color 
in black and white film as sort of a storytelling nonlinear device, I'm assuming, just like he did with Memento. He didn't confirm it's nonlinear, but he said it's like when he did Memento, going back to that kind of storytelling device with the colors of what you're using. So it seems like, I'm guessing, present day will be black and white. That's where Robert Downey Jr.'s character is, and it looks like when Oppenheimer will be on trial and being questioned and obviously interrogated by the U.S. government, as well as the color sequences will probably be in the past, which will be the majority and bulk of the film of developing the Project Manhattan. And, I mean, just looking at Manhattan that... Manhattan Project. Yeah. <laughs> Manhattan. That, that trailer, seeing it on the big screen, it's just so impressive. And uh, the, what IMAX film can do, it, it really is the most beautiful way to shoot a film and the most uh, incredible, highest quality image that can be produced right now in the current moment is with the 65mm IMAX film. And so few filmmakers are doing it to this day. It is very pricey. It's very expensive cameras, and it's very expensive film. And so not everybody can use it. So I think it's great for filmmakers like Chris Nolan, like J.J. Abrams, and a handful of others who, you know, since their productions can afford it, and since they have it in their clauses, basically, with the studios to be like, I'm going to shoot this how I want. And the studio basically just says, yeah, do whatever you think is right. You earned it. This guy's made a lot of movies that have made a lot of money, so he's earned the right to spend all the money he wants to make sure the image is captured the way he sees fit. And to see someone really embrace that and not go digital, I think, is really fantastic. But to go really to the tangibility of real film, because I think a lot of people, um, obviously no one listening to this podcast because we talk about it so much, but I like I think general audiences think that film looks old and film looks grainy, and film gets dusty, like they look, they think of, I think maybe vintage filters that you can put on a, a video on Instagram or, or in a photo app and Valencia. Yeah. Yeah. I think that people think that, that, that film means it looks old, whereas quite the contrary film, especially in this high quality format is the, the highest caliber image that can be captured on screen and presented to an audience. It is number one in terms of quality. And that's something that I think Audiences are beginning to maybe slowly understand when more filmmakers start using it more often. Now let's get into another aesthetic of film that we adore, production design. We have Ruth DeJong doing Oppenheimer versus Sarah Greenwood, who is doing Barbie. Now, Ruth DeJong, she's done a this bunch of— This is her first film with Nolan. Yeah, first Nolan yeah. film, but she's done work on Terrence Malick films, and there will be in uh, um, Paul Thomas Anderson films, she was— uh, art director on Night of Cups, Inherent Vice, The Future, as well as worked in the art department on Tree of Life, The Master to the Wonder. She's been a production designer most recently on Manchester by the Sea, Twin Peaks, the 2017 show. She did 18 episodes, Yellowstone, and now she's Jordan Peele's production designer. She did Us in 2019 and then Nope in 2022. And I'm sure Jordan Peele and Chris Nolan being friends, got link- they linked well, no. So, her, right? so Jack Fisk was the production designer of those films. He worked with uh, Terrence Malick on many of his films, and so I think that Ruth worked with Jack Fisk, rising up in the industry to become her own production designer. And so I think that's how the connection happened because of Jack Fisk, who's been a longstanding, high caliber uh, production designer for decades. Yeah, but I'm also just saying yeah. her last, her two films oh, are yeah. Us and Nope, and yeah. Jordan Peele and Chris Nolan are friends. No, I'm saying I think Jack Fisk connected yeah, them. Yeah, I'm just, no. we don't know. I'm just, I'm saying, I'm, you're speculating, and I'm, I'm speculating. speculating too. Yeah. I'm speculating. I thought you were turning me down, man. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Anyways, think... but this is her first time working with Nolan, and she's doing Oppenheimer. And then we have Sarah Greenwood, 
who's doing Barbie. Now let's run through Sarah Greenwood's career doing production design. She was the production designer on some so many great projects. Let's see, going back to the 1990s, but let's stay in the 2000s where she did The Last King, Pride and Prejudice, Atonement, The Soloist, Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, Holmes A Game of Shadows, Hannah, Anna Karenina, Beauty and the Beast, Darkest Hour, Rebecca, Sereno, and now Barbie. So I think so. She's like the best there is. She's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Like that's an incredible she's catalog. Number one. What a filmography! Yeah. Holy, holy crap! The so, best money you can pay for. Goodness gracious! So again, Greta Gerwig making a great decision by finding a very experienced and effective and talented production designer. Well, I've seen so many interviews with so many of like the greatest directors. Nominated for six Oscars. Jeez. I've seen so many interviews with so many of the greatest directors ever, and they often say something similar along the lines of, if you surround yourself with talented people, it just makes the movie that much better. And it, it that only makes sense. I mean, and for someone someone like Greta and someone like Nolan, they have the pull where I'm sure everybody wants to work with them. And everybody is just like waiting for that chance and opportunity to work on a Nolan movie or to work on a Greta Gerwig movie. So I think that they have a lot of pull in the industry to really... When you get to that level of being a filmmaker, you can really just pick and choose amongst the best of the best of all crew departments, which really excels your film exponentially. If your film, if you bring the camera, if if you bring you in your camera crew and your in your cast, and you're in, in a beautiful set and have an amazing DP, fantastic wardrobe, it's like. And then talented actors, all you gotta do is start recording, you know? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> just turn the camera on yeah. and you're gonna get something really good. And so I think that, you know, it's it's always important to um, pay respects not just to directors, but to the entire teams. We often try to talk about the crew departments in our in our reviews of films and I think it's important to understand that this is a huge collaborative process amongst many uh, different departments, which is why I think that Affleck and Damon's new movie of getting those department heads cuts of the box office is such a great idea and hopefully is implemented into every film production i think that eventually that should be like a standard practice where your your cinematographer or your production designer they should be getting a cut of the back end of the box office and all proceeds of the film um to that be being able to reward them outside of their upfront fee I think it's just something that should happen to everyone. Now, this is the first time that Christopher Nolan hasn't worked with his usual production designer, Nathan Crowley. He's done every single one of his movies except for Memento and following every, or, of course. So Nathan Crowley did Insomnia, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Prestige, Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, Dunkirk, Tenet. He's done, that's every Nolan movie, right? Oh, no, Inception's not on here. So everything except for Inception and Memento. Nathan Crowley has done for Christopher Nolan. I'm assuming it's because he's busy on Wonka. Maybe that's why it didn't work out scheduling conflicts, just like how uh, Hans Zimmer hasn't worked with Christopher Nolan on Tenet and won't be working with him on Oppenheimer because he's been busy with Dune and Dune Part 2. So that's my assumption is maybe because he already signed on to Wonka, he wasn't able to do Oppenheimer. He's also doing Wicked right now. Okay, yeah, so Wicked So I think too. it's both those things. I think it's. I think that... My guess is that Wonka and Wicked shot back-to-back almost, and so he probably signed on to Wonka before he signed on to Oppenheimer, and then he just had no time to fit in his schedule and then took Wicked instead. Yeah, because he's done eight of Christopher Nolan's movies, which is insane. Yeah, but he's still—I mean, Nolan's changed DPs and hasn't lost a step, so 
But I mean, it's important for directors to, they like to, if they like working with someone and they trust them, it's important to them to have someone I can trust and can translate my vision onto the screen where I don't have to. I think that also, if communications can be easy with someone you've worked with for two decades, like that is just such an instrumental part of filmmaking and collaborating in any group setting. And so it would take a, you have to be a, a great director to be able to, okay, I don't have my trusted DP. I don't have my trusted production designer, but can I start? I can make. Can I make it work with someone else? And so that's important to be able to. I mean, you can't get the same person every time. But I mean, I, I'm guessing it's definitely scheduling conflicts because even Hans and him. I think there was rumors that like Hans and him had a falling out or something. They just didn't the scheduling. It didn't work out with Dune. And I saw an interview with Nolan where he was talking to Villeneuve. He they did a screening of Dune, and he said he called Hans my old friend. He's like, "How was it working with my old friend Hans?" That must have been wild. So I'm guarantee you Hans and Nolan are still on great terms. They just, you know, it doesn't always work out. Yeah, they're busy guys. Yeah. Hans Zimmer is the most in-demand film composer there is on the planet. You know, Absolutely. everyone wants yeah. to work with Hans Zimmer. But again, to be able to work with another composer like Ludwig and still come across with a score that sounds like it fits perfectly in a Christopher Nolan movie means that, you know, Christopher Nolan knows what he wants and he's going to get what he wants. And the cool thing about how they got connected was... He was saw he met Ryan Coogler and they did a screening of Black Panther and Christopher Nolan said I loved it but who did your music who did the music for Black Panther and he's like Ryan Coogler's like oh this is my guy Ludwig mm-hmm. and then he introduced them and that's how they got connected to do Tenet oh wow that's fantastic yeah so so that's really cool but I love how those connections get made but I mean in terms of the Zeitgeist, that's crazy man what to just be like friends with Christopher Nolan <laughs> no to be to be well yeah that too but uh just Ludwig to go from in a matter of a few years, to go from an unknown composer to doing a major Marvel film and then becoming Nolan's new favorite composer. That's wild. Well, let's not say favorite, because I'm sure Hans is still his guy. Yeah, yeah. Hans is still his guy. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. But, you know, his new uh, his new guy. It's like, you know, when De Niro got replaced by Leo in <laughs> Scorsese movies, you know, he's got to tell these stories with younger actors, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. Just yeah. like every time I see the... The images of Martin Scorsese and Timothy Chalamet in New York filming their Chanel <laughs> he's commercial. Him. I'm like, Leo's like looking at these photos. God damn, motherfucker. He's the, grooming him. He's the new one. He's going to replace me now. DiCaprio's going to age out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he won't ever. I'm just saying. It happened to De Niro. I think, I think that too. I think that maybe because I think Scorsese will still be making films for another 15 years. I think that eventually, you know, he'll move on to another actor who. Cause, Leo will be in his 50s and 60s, and I'm sure there are going to be great stories that Scorsese wants to tell with the younger cast. I mean, he's already worked with Garfield in Driver already. Yeah, you can't have Leo, I mean, uh, Robert De Niro and Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, it's not going to work. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's Spielberg. I'm sorry. <laughs> the Aviator. The Aviator, yeah, I mean. Yeah. You can't have De Niro as the Aviator. Yeah, yeah. Being 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to happen at some point. But uh, oh, yeah. I, I love how um, I made a great tweet where I said that. <laughs> Timothy Chalamet was quoted saying that Martin Scorsese is the best director of all time, and he also last year his favorite movie was Top Gun Maverick. So I wrote, "He's one of us." Google gobble, Google gobble, one of us, one of us. Speaking of Wolf of Wall Street, Rodrigo Pietro directed. Yeah, I mean, shot it. So that movie looks fantastic. I think that movie is underrated for its cinematography. I think both movies are gonna look incredible. I think they're both gonna be great. They're gonna be so tonally different. I am really excited to see both. However, for me, my anticipation for Dunkirk is through the roof. I haven't been this excited for a movie since probably Dune Part One, and before that, it was probably like a Christopher. It's probably Dunkirk, but um, 
Whenever, like, yeah. we, you all know how much we love Christopher Nolan. Whenever he comes out with a movie, we're there day one, day two, seeing it in theaters. So giddy. Did I ever tell you about that comment about you someone made? The comment about me? Yeah. What'd they say? So it was a, it was a video I made of you talking about how... Uh, it was it was during our live show episode, and I made a I made a clip on social media of you talking about how uh, your excitement for every Christopher Nolan movie, and it's like your most excited thing of, of your life is whenever Nolan comes out with a new movie. <laughs> it's you true. know, you're you're so giddy and you're looking forward to it, and it, it just makes you so happy when the film comes out. And then someone commented, uh, "That's sad. I mean, that's actually really sad that this ha- that you care that much about Christopher Nolan." I love movies, dude. And I, I, and I comment, I replied to him. I usually don't, but I replied, you know, it's sad that you think that someone can't like a filmmaker. Like, you're the sad one. Passion. Yeah. Sorry, I like movies, dude. Yeah. Jesus. Know, what does yeah. that guy like to do? <laughs> just hate on people, I guess. My goodness. How dare you be excited about your favorite filmmaker's new movie? You know what? You're happy. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you be happy? I'm not happy, but you are. So I got to destroy you, man. I got to bring you down. I don't want you to be happy. I don't well, want anyone to feel good ever. Everyone should feel miserable like me 24-7. <laughs> That's the sound that guy wakes up, everybody. <laughs> Another day. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're happy. I I don't like that. <laughs> hey, man, I like what I like. That's so funny. Oh, my God. I can't yeah. be the only one that gets really excited when Christopher Nolan comes out with a new movie. I have a bunch of unsubscribes if you want to go through some Oh, yeah, quick. let's do some unsubscribes. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I got some good ones. <laughs> that guy the, definitely unsubscribed. Yeah, I can't remember the, the name of the guy's profile. Oh, I, I remember now because that was a clip from the live performance, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. It was a live performance clip. I All remember, right. I, I was, like, out of my body while I was saying that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were in front of 100 people, yeah. you know? It's 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 not all you can't always sound like perfect, especially when you can't cut. Yeah. All right. King of the North wrote, "We rarely say masterpiece." Says masterpiece three times in one minute. Unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Because I was talking about yeah, how yeah, we yeah. should use masterpiece less often for films, but I said it three times. So technically, yeah. You got uh, me. That was a good one. You got me. That killed me. <laughs> Casey obviously wrote. Edward Cohen? <laughs> Cohen? Unsubscribed immediately. That was me. I called Edward Cullen Cohen. <laughs> Might be. Uh, Tommy Cresta from Popcorn Podcast wrote, The Amazing Spider-Man is also hitting Disney+. Plus. Unsubscribed. Oh, is it really? Cool. Yeah. And then uh, uh, he's, a, he's a big fan of the Garfield uh, Spider-Man movies. Okay, here we go. Josh Miguel for our top actresses. It it the title should have been called Kiss, Marry, Kill, Hollywood edition because all the oozing hotness and charisma of these actresses shaking my head. Unsubscribed. They're all very wonderful, beautiful ladies. Oh my God. Here's a real hater. Ready for this? Yeah. On TikTok, Duh Sean wrote, Anybody else absolutely hate their laughs? It can't just be me. Oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> He's a he, he's I think he's a, a follower though. Why do you follow us, dude? No, like he's like a fan. No, it wasn't an unsubscribe. No, because he did an unsubscribe in another comment. I oh, him. oh well, duh, Sean, you gotta write unsubscribed after. I thought it was real. Yeah, you I made think, Jimmy cry. I think he, he made you cry. Look how defensive you got, Deshaun, I know you're a fan, so I know you're just kidding. All right, sorry, Deshaun. Yeah. Next time, yeah, write, next time, write unsubscribe. Write unsubscribe because we'll yeah. think you're a real hater. Yeah. Maybe maybe he really doesn't. <laughs> yeah, like maybe our he does. Though. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then uh, <laughs> Life with Marshall wrote, No, Anya hurt me. I can't lie. We didn't put it in our top 10. But then, sorry, just heard the honorable mentions list. Resubscribed. <laughs> Anya hurt? Who what? We didn't put Anya 
I'm not putting Anya on our list. Heard him. Oh, Anya Taylor Joy. Yeah. All right. Sorry, I didn't even yeah. hear what you said. Oh, no worries. <laughs> you were like no. Anya. <laughs> no, Anya hurt me. Gotcha. Yeah. Anya Taylor Joy. Yeah. Exactly what I said. Well, I'm just the listeners are probably like, what the hell did Anthony just say? I think everybody heard. I don't think a single person understood what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna do an Instagram poll. You should. Did you understand what I said? No one had any context or understood <laughs> the the English that you said. No, Anya hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can understand the lack of context there. <laughs> you gotta give people context. I man. usually open with the the clip. I didn't do that at that time. I'm always trying to give context because you're just running through the comments. Anyways, anyways, <laughs> this is not let's roast Anthony for ten minutes. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> Rasco wrote, "This is a great review, man, on your Last of Us Part Two review. You did do a great job." Oh, thanks, pal. That dropped uh, Tuesday. I do recommend Ghost of Tsushima. Its visuals, open world, and Kurosawa influence got me through three playthroughs. I don't have a segue into this, but unsubscribed. Whoa. <laughs> and then... That's all of them. I said to get them out. They were good ones this week. So many unsubscribes. So what do you think both films will do opening weekend grosses? Well, actually, you know, after talking through it, when I said I expected 100 mil and then going through Nolan... Then, it, then we went through You Nolan's, were like, that sounds absurd. Then we saw Nolan's opening weekends and then Greta's opening weekends and then also the fact that Mission Impossible 7 will be out in theaters just for 10 days, not even. You know, 100 mil on both is probably a lot. I would say both in the $75 million opening weekend range globally. That's, that's healthy. I think that's pretty fair. Well, um, domestically, not globally. D- domestic opening, what do you think? Domestic opening, I would say both around 50, 50? to 75. Okay. All right. 50 to 75 domestic. I think that's a safe guess. I think they're going to be hot movies, but those are big box offices. A lot. Of oh, people, yeah, that's great. Those are still huge numbers. Yeah. Like, they're both going to make that's a fantastic. lot of money, but, yeah. like, I think people will be dissuaded, be like, oh, it only made $55 million. Yeah, it's not a Marvel movie. It's, um, I think both films will do very well, and I think that Oppenheimer will perform better internationally. I think that it'll have a better global box office run. Uh, because Nolan is a big name across the world. Yeah, it's a Nolan movie. Yeah. You know? I think it'll be huge. And also, it's very relevant. Uh, I think Europe's going to like it a lot. Um, I don't Yeah, I, I don't see Barbie beating it overseas. Although I think Barbie will still do great overseas, but I think that... I think Oppenheimer will make 250 domestic and then maybe four to 500 global, international. And then Barbie, I think, will also make around two, 250 domestic, but then two, 250... International as well for about five hundred million. What's also interesting about both Oppenheimer and Barbie is they both have a budget of a hundred million dollars. Wow! When was the last time Nolan made a movie for that cheap? Oh my God! I don't know. Hundred million dollars. Yeah. That's, that's nothing. That's like that's like the prestige. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're shooting mostly in uh, probably a small number of locations. You know, that's probably what it He's is. He's saving yeah. a ton. I mean, he hasn't had a budget that small since. I bet the Prestige. Yeah, the Prestige. Probably, I think the Prestige had a fifty million dollar budget. Insomnia was like I think forty or fifty, something like that. Yeah, so yeah, that's that's crazy. Him working on such a small budget, it's interesting. So I think it'll be a really profitable film for him in his career for sure. Oh yeah, I you, think you know Universal's like a hundred. That's it. That's all you need, Chris. Oh okay. Yeah. yeah. So I think the first week or two, I think Barbie will be ahead, but I think long term, over the after like a month, Oppenheimer will have the global box office superiority over Barbie. Yeah, I think ultimately Oppenheimer has a larger uh, audience. They're both going to be bangers. Yeah. Oh, for sure. They're for both sure. going to be bangers. They're for both sure. going to make a ton of money. A lot of butts are going to get put in seats for these films. It's going to be a big summer, man. A really big summer. It's insane, man. I have uh, some fun trivia for Barbie because we did so much for Oppenheimer. And if Let's you haven't tuned into yeah. that episode, everything we know about Oppenheimer, we talked about a lot. So 
According to Ryan Gosling, he accepted the role of Ken after seeing his daughter's Ken doll lying face down in the mud next to a squished lemon. He then took a shot of the doll and lemon and sent it to Greta Gerwig saying, I shall be your Ken. His story must be told. (laughs) (laughs) The font used in the film is based on the 1990s font that was used for all Barbie dolls, products, and merchandise in that decade. The Barbie logo usually undergoes a makeover after each generation. I didn't know that. And, yeah, that's that's it. I mean, oh, actually, Margot Robbie and Kate McKinnon, who both play Barbies, had previously starred in Bombshell together in 2019. In the film, McKinnon plays Jess Carr. She plays an anchor Barbie, like a news anchor Barbie, Mm -hmm. I think. Got it, got it. Called Kayla Pospisil. (laughs) (laughs) Pospisil. And before the trailer was released, Deadline reported that the film would be rated PG by the MPAA, which we are assuming is going to stay true. Oh my God! Yeah, they they want it. It's a it, yeah. It's got to be PG. It's also the first theatrical released live action movie to be based on a doll line ever since Bratz. There was a live action Bratz movie in two thousand seven. What Bratz with a Z? Bratz. Z. <laughs> I always thought those ads were weird. Remember the Bratz ads with them like walking down the side? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were like the Skechers ads too. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm thinking of Steve Madden. Steve, Steve Madden. That's what the Steve they Madden They look like Brad's yeah. you're right. Steve. Either way. Women's uh, shoes. <laughs> Women's shoes. So hot. Steve. She's so hot. She's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got anything else on Barbie versus Oppenheimer? I'm just very excited to see both films, and I love both filmmakers. I think it's going to be a fantastic summer. We have a lot of films to go see in theaters in IMAX. Both in IMAX. I hope if Ar- Barbie's, Barbie's going to be in IMAX? I don't know. I, I'm maybe. No, the thing with IMAX is they just do one film oh, yeah, at a time. Right. Sorry. So Nolan's got IMAX. Yeah, Oppenheimer's yeah. IMAX. It's ma- it was shot with IMAX, if so they're going to do IMAX. If you live in like a major city, try to see if you can get a film screening where they will they'll project film, either 35 or 65 millimeter. A lot of theaters do it for the first couple weeks for Nolan films, and I highly, highly recommend seeing this film and that kind of experience. It is the greatest thing you'll ever see. I saw Dunkirk in 70mm film projection at IMAX, which was incredible. We saw Jane, I mean, um, The Hateful Eight in 70mm projection at Arclight. So if you can see film projection for Oppenheimer, I highly recommend getting those tickets. It's incredible. It's the ultimate way to watch it. That's the way it's designed. It's the best. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to our breakdown and showdown. That was fun. Barbie versus Oppenheimer. Liv didn't think this would be a good episode, but... How do you like me us now? How do you like me now? Proved you wrong, Liv. That was pretty entertaining. How do you like them apples, Liv? You asked me... Just kidding. We love you. Become a a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. It is the best way to support our show. It keeps the lights on. Every single patron gets access to two bonus episodes Every week, you get the weekly chat, which is exclusively on Patreon now, as well as a weekly Patreon bonus episode of our choosing. And we have five different tiers, $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every tier comes with a bunch of awesome perks. That $10 tier gets you access to our Discord. It's an incredible film community. We do watch parties on there a couple times a month. We just did Step Brothers the other night. It was an absolute blast. $25, you get your own custom episode. $100 tier is the ultimate package. You get a ton of other great perks in addition to a private watch party. And after three months in that tier, you can come on the show for a fun guest segment, bring in for the intermission, chat about the film afterwards and it's the best we appreciate you all so much all of our patrons keep the lights on for the show you're the reason we can do the show full-time as well as everyone else listening and tuning in on all the platforms we post so thank you so much for all your support around the world whether or not you're a patron wow that was lovely thanks man 
What a great ending. I know, right? All right, take care, everyone. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.